back to the podcast! I am Rob, I am joined by Dave, the brains of this operation, and we are here to discuss many, many things over the course of the next few podcasts involving all kinds of pop and geek culture, especially in movies and music and games and things like that. So today, say hi Dave. Hello. All right, today we are going to be tackling something that anybody involved with social media will probably brush up against at some point or another. Before that, it was whenever some fans got together, these topics would always come up. It's, what do the fans want? Or do the fans even know what they want? And uh, certainly we have our share of of, uh, fandoms that we belong to, right, Dave? That that is correct. I, of course, have a... uh, I I am a longtime gamer, uh, role-playing games, video games, what have you, and we have our crazy fans. Dave? Oh, I am a fan of a lot of things, uh, specifically movie franchises, lots of them. Any, all sorts of them, from the horror genre, comedy, uh, sci-fi, anything that's more than two movies tends to have a cult following behind it and a set of rules and a set of uh, circumstances that each movie should follow, according to the fans, that is. And sometimes I get uh, suckered into that, so. Sure. Uh, Well, we're all human. Being a fan of something is just part of being human, really. You fall in love with the things that you're passionate about. But sometimes a person can lose all their reason. All sensibility goes flying out the window. And in this day and age, you know, back in the day, how would you protest somebody not making something that you liked? You wrote it in magazines and you hoped that it got published. But <laughs> you, really- at the very least, could not go to the events and boycott them or yeah, editorials, certainly. A lot of complaints. Planning certainly went on, but your opportunity to interact with the people who were making your movies was pretty limited. Not so today. Social media has blown everything completely out of the water. Now the roles are reversed. We almost dictate the narrative to the people creating things. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at several different franchises and movie dump, and we're going to explore what the fans may or may not have done to these franchises or, uh, you know, how they felt about different changes that happened as they organically evolved and changed. And as Dave does most of the heavy lifting here with his knowledge of movies, we're going to let you start. Yeah, we had four franchises to talk about. Each one of them has had a movie released recently, or maybe they got a television show in development to follow up what's been done already. We have, for starters, Alien and Ridley Scott. Now, Alien came out 1979 and blew the world away, and Alien was just a quick production to get into because of the success of Star Wars. But at the same time, too, it definitely completely jumped genres. It wasn't copying Star Wars. It was certainly taking advantage of that, but the horror aspect was completely different. Correct. The the uh, the horrors of space is what Alien was, and actuality, it was the script that they had in their hands, and they wanted to make a space movie, darn it. That's, that was the whole point. Interestingly um, enough, Aliens would have worked just fine on Earth as a horror movie, as a matter of fact, several other several elements of Predator. Very similar. The cat and mouse game the Predator faced with the mystery of the nature of the alien from Alien. I think it certainly had uh, a lot of patterning uh, involved with that. But go ahead, Dave. Keep going. Right. So Ridley Scott made this masterpiece and James Cameron followed it up with a sequel. And then we had two other sequels after that. And the decline started happening around Alien 3, Alien 4, Alien versus Predator. So fans were 
were clamoring for, we need Ridley Scott back. We want Ridley Scott. And the social media sites were just, bring Ridley Scott back to save this franchise. We need him back. And, you know, Fox did eventually seek Ridley Scott out to do the, uh, to do another Alien movie. And he was fine with that. He agreed as at first as a producer but the fans were like no we want you Ridley Scott to direct this movie and eventually Fox and Ridley Scott came to a deal and a deal was broke that they got to make this alien prequel that the fans wanted Ridley Scott to make and uh, of course you know the fans is a general outcry it's easy to say the fan but uh, the, the social media sites were filled with various comments of bring Ridley Scott back and this even went way before 1999. I mean, I was part of an alien fan site, and message boards was the thing back then, and even those were full of, of if it wasn't Ridley Scott's name, it was James Cameron's name, but they, they wanted somebody who made those movies already to come back to fix the damage that was done. Now, even though the fans may not have been happy with the direction that the movies had gone in, as far as the box office, how did that look for the movies as they went on? Mm. They were still financial successes, weren't they? Not so much around domestic levels. And back then, they watched domestic numbers more than they watched worldwide numbers. And uh, Alien 3 and 4 were a, a decline. And when Alien vs. Predator came out, that was the opposite. But then at the same time, you're pulling from two separate fan bases. And and it was PG-13, so it might have gave it that extra little boost that the last couple Alien films did not have. And then they followed that up with an Alien vs. Predator 2, which was the worst of all of the franchises, I believe. Uh, well, sequels are often hard to pull off, and especially when you've got you know two such drastically different franchises that go together, and uh, head-to-head isn't always a perfect marriage. Yeah, and, and, you know, Scott ended up turning, just like we mentioned. And then, you know, this is where things start to get a little dicey to the fan. Uh, months into the pre-production, it is confusingly, and I say confusingly, I mean, we were confused. I mean, our friend Neil and I used to just talk about this nonstop, was it was no longer going to be an alien prequel, but it was going to be something original. No longer an alien movie, its own movie with hints of alien DNA. In. And that was the statement that we got from uh, Ridley Scott. And not just me or Neil or any of the other people on the social media, we had no clue what he was trying to say. We didn't know if it was going to be a spinoff or if it was going to be something completely original like that happens with scripts is they'll write something and then they'll just kind of abandon certain points and trail off and do something else. So let me guess the fans' reaction to that. I'm guessing there was a lot of wringing of hands, gnashing of teeth, screaming, this is all a complete dodge. Uh, uh, we've been we've been lied to. Or was there more hope behind it? There was still a little hope because when some of these people heard the original story were it was a mixed it was mixed reaction at that point you know some of us wanted alien i wanted alien uh at the same time i was well i wonder what this new thing's gonna be all about the trailer comes out and if anyone's seen the original alien you have that space jockey ship and that space jockey where they discover the eggs in it right and the trailer had that ship and a what we called then the space jockey type character in there and well that tells you right there it's a spin-off it's the, the you know cinematic
cinematic universe where they're going to take elements that were in the alien film but then do some different angle with it i was still okay with you know, that i like the expanding the story instead of focusing on this the the, the same thing but apparently some of the fans weren't the, correct it was not what they wanted when the movie came out you know it, it didn't have the alien in it uh and then we get the the characters are too stupid which you know, for scientists i guess you could say yeah there is some stupid characters in there what they they wanted they wanted they wanted the alien i i don't remember if they wanted ripley but you're not going to have ripley because a prequel uh they, they wanted to see chest bursters they wanted to see all the stuff that they saw before uh so looking here at um at Ridley Scott's filmography, he made Alien in 1979. Between that and the time he made his next Alien movie, he made or directed uh, films like Legend, 1985, Black Rain, 1989, Thelma and Louise, 1991, G.I. Jane, 1997, Hannibal, 2001, Kingdom of Heaven, 2005, American Gangster, 2007, and then Prometheus, 2012. So I think it's safe to say that Ridley probably wasn't having the original stuff anymore. He's changed. Correct. That's a long time to go between making a movie that your fans are frozen to holding up as an ideal to you know 2012 he's grown in his tastes he has access to a lot more toys now let's face it the budget for that movie was quite a bit more than alien oh yeah uh, and, and, and he also had more freedom too exactly uh, he had money he had freedom and he got to do the kind of movie that he wanted to do not necessarily what the fans want correct so that went predictably with some of the yeah some of of them liked it some of them didn't mostly didn't like it uh they, they wanted this alien they wanted this alien feel like alien and aliens projected this 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 feeling of atmosphere which the hard part i have understanding with prometheus is prometheus did have those structures the the feeling that alien and aliens projected those movies could flow together minus some uh plot holes you know due to you know an incomplete prequel trilogy arc or whatever was going on on and Ridley Scott's head. Um, so Prometheus, like I mentioned, mixed reviews from not just the fans, but the critics as well. But the fans still held hope for the sequel. As far as the, the critics go, uh, right now Metascore has it at 64 for a Metacritic score. It's not great for a lauded director married up with his passion, intellectual prop self. Just as an aside. Right. But unlike the gap between 1979 to 2012 and 2017, Ridley Scott return to the Alien franchise with a sequel to Prometheus titled Alien Covenant. Yes. And that one explored more so the character of David, the android that was the, one of the main characters in Prometheus and gave him more depth um, and understanding of what this character was. And some would argue that this is Ridley Scott also trying to bring Blade Runner into his Alien universe, but kind of disagree with that. Both movies have robots, but they're two completely different things. The problem fans had with this, they had a bigger problem with Alien Covenant than they did Prometheus. Was uh, I don't know if we can say spoiler because the movie's been out since 2017. And I don't think it matters really. I'm not spoiling it. Let's try not to go to specifics, but go ahead. But the, the Alien Covenant has David, the android, designing the alien that we are familiar with from Alien, Aliens, and other sequels. The Xenomorph. Correct. The Xenomorph. Um, or as Michael Fassbender calls it, the Xenomorph. Metascore? 
taking on 52 reviews from critics, uh, also 65 rating. So, again, kind of, eh. Yeah, the, again, I enjoyed what Alien Covenant had to offer. I had some of my own problems with that myself, the movie. Uh, mainly what I just mentioned, David creating the xenomorph alien monster, which, uh, unless if we get this third movie, which I, I don't think we're going to get, you know, it didn't make a whole lot of money, not even on a worldwide level, and, well, Disney acquisition of Fox might make that a little difficult. So you have this movie really doing a U-turn on the alien itself, and you, our imaginations as fans were thinking the alien is a lot older than what Ridley Scott was saying, but this could have been Ridley Scott's big FU to Alien versus Predator also saying, nope, that movie doesn't happen. These, David created the alien. Another thing to remember, too, is that Ridley Scott was the director. He was not the writer. There actually is a writing behind Correct. Alien Covenant. So obviously Ridley signed off on it, but there's there's a number of voices that are involved. Ridley in was the yes and no guy. I mean, like I said, they Fox gave him the creative control that he wanted, and he went with that creative control. And my understanding was Ridley Scott did steer it in that direction where he liked the idea of David just designing the alien itself. In the original script, it was David took notes from the engineers, which were the space jockeys I mentioned earlier, that he took their notes and then he began designing the creatures based off of their notes. So it was saying that, yeah, those aliens existed before, but David tweaked them. But the the, the way this movie ended up doing, David did it. And that's what Ridley Scott is saying. And the fans really rejected that. And the box office, uh, the take kind of showed that. Yes, yes. Um, it, you know, they, and this goes back to do fans even know what they want? You know, they wanted Ridley Scott to come back. That was their big push. They, they, darn it, we want Ridley Scott to come back and make our alien movie. At what cost? He did come back, but guess what? Just like you mentioned, Rob, as an artist, he grew from those movies. I mean, those, those are like some hardcore dramas in there. So he didn't just stick to sci-fi. And as an artist, he doesn't want to do the same thing. And I think we as fans sometimes have trouble understanding that, that when you bring somebody in to do something, they don't want to just do the same. Sometimes they want to evolve their their storytelling. Do you think the fans would have been satisfied if Scott had decided to go the way that so many have before and done just a reboot of Alien? Would that have made the fans happy? I don't know about that one. Well, apparently they don't like how he took a story in a different direction from what they were familiar with. But as we will talk about in other franchises, whenever a hard reboot is done for a franchise, the fans can get awfully edgy about that too. Correct, correct. Uh, Ghostbusters, Star Wars, yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, I, I don't know that a, that a reboot really would have been a good solution either. Uh, unless you were continuing the franchise on and going in a direction. Uh, reboots are tricky things to pull off. And very rarely do they happen well. You know, it's funny that you uh, mentioned reboot because uh, I think the next one we'll talk about was almost a reboot but it was decided to make it a a sequel instead all right let's let's do that we'll talk about very recently the predator and shane black okay uh the story behind predator and shane black go back for quite a while in fact shane black 
was a big time action writer in the 80s and early parts in the 90s. He wrote Lethal Weapon. He wrote Last Action Hero, which doesn't really say Last Action Hero. People cringe because that was one of Schwarzenegger's biggest flops. Yeah. Uh, and that that's what brought Shane Black down too for quite a while. But there was a period of time where he was one of the biggest action writers in Hollywood. Highly paid too. Oh, no doubt. So he goes back to the original Predator where they had a script written by two amateurs, I believe, just two guys wrote a script. And usually the process with that is if you're a fresh writer in Hollywood, you never get your very first script produced untouched. They might take that script. They say they like the story, but they're going to have somebody tweak it up a bit. Sure. So director John McTiernan originally wanted Shane Black to do the rewrites to Predator, the original one. Okay. Shane Black comes on board. What well, He reads the script. He doesn't really come on board. He reads the script and says, don't touch anything. It's fine. Leave it as it is. And John McTiernan's like, okay, but how about won't you just come on by and uh, I'll cast you in the movie and you can do a role in the film. So that was Shane Black's introduction to the Predator universe is he played Hawkins, the very first person to be killed by the Predator in movie history. There we go. He was also the pretty foul-mouthed character. Well, yeah. So, as he would be. Yeah, then that was that was his character. You know, that was Shane Black's introduction to the world of Predator. Now, years later, years after his last action hero debacle, he's become a successful filmmaker himself, not just writing his own movies, but also directing them. Uh which includes Iron Man 3 for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was some point after that, fans were starting to want another Predator movie. But the social media sites like AVP Galaxy, you just start reading in the comments, get, get Shane Black, get Shane Black to do write and direct this, this movie. We need Shane Black. Again, with 20, 20th Century Fox, they strike a deal with Shane Black. They managed to bring him on board. They, you know, they, originally they wanted to do a Predator reboot, but he, Shane Black's like, no, I want to make a sequel i think i can offer and expand the world of the predator in a sequel so that's what he does is he decides to uh make a sequel fans start getting excited you know we got shane black we wanted shane black honestly isn't that kind of an affirmation of what he originally said on how good the initial script was that not only does he not want to reboot it he wants to work off of that that's kind of uncommon for a writer especially one who's seen success before so uh, again it's just an aside something into his character is you know he stuck to his guns and says the original was really good and he wants to go off of that correct and you know now as you mentioned that i never put two and two together but that makes sense for what you know why maybe he decided to make it a sequel and not a reboot because technically it didn't need to be a reboot and uh, that's that's okay but the fans were excited for a while they got what they wanted but you know reports of reshoots that's the cringe for fans now and we could get into this in more detail but fans the internet social media the various movie shows on YouTube. We've been trained to hear these words about reshoots. Reshoots are bad, apparently. You know, some of these people we talk to... Well, from the outside, a reshoot means that the vision going forward is muddled. That often means that there's a power struggle behind the scenes, uh, changing of directors, producers uh, weighing in and changing the vision, Mm -hmm. monetary cuts, 
you know, there's usually something that's a fairly big shakeup. But yes, it is enough to get the fans panicking. Yes, especially now. I mean, it's just because we, we get the news. It's a 24-hour news cycle now, even in the entertainment world. So when we see it, some people begin to panic. I think some of the people that begin to panic don't research far enough back into the past that several great movies have had reshoots and even more so than what we ended up with with Predator. I have a suspicion, though, that there's probably been a couple of movies that were really, really bad and reshooting and a lack of clear vision was blamed on that. I think uh, the, some of the DC movies that came out recently Suicide were plagued, Squad. Uh, Suicide Squad was plagued with that. The Justice League. The Justice League. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's reason to have red flags when reshoots and inconstancy in the directing in editing and things like that happen. There's a reason why director's cuts can be more popular than the original movies are. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, as a, context, a point of context for that. Correct. And the urban setting that the Predator was said to have also got the fan base a little riled up. You know, they wanted the jungle. They can't picture the Predator in an urban setting. If you go back to the Predator 2 that came out in the 1990, the, some people didn't like the concept of the predator in the city they they felt he should belong in the jungle uh we already kind of had a predator in an urban setting that was aliens versus predator 2 but you couldn't really see anything because that movie was so dark like in terms of cinematography the guy forgot to turn the lights on (laughs) uh yeah but you know the fans are starting to be like "Uh, we wanted shane black but then shane black is presenting to them his story idea and then now they're like "I, i i don't know i don't know if i like this or not and Shane Black was promising something new and different regarding the Predator franchise. The movie's released, and then, of course, it gets the strong fan backlash. I saw the movie. I liked what they offered, for the most part. There are some things in there especially the ending, that I'm like, they really do that with the ending? It's a little silly. You're promising a sequel. I don't think you should be promising sequels, but whatever. Fine, fine. Just, you know, do that. They introduce new things to the Predator mythology. Spaceship battle chase thing going down with two Predator ships chasing each other. That was a cool opening, you know. Hmm. The the science lab where they capture the Predator. Shane Black's detail to honoring the other Predator films with the fact of casting Jake Busey in a role to play the son of Peter Keyes, who was played by his father, Gary Busey, in Predator 2. They even had the... I didn't see this. I'm just going off what people spotted, but uh, in Alien vs. Predator the character had like a uh, predator spear with an alien tail on it and apparently that was hanging up in the back- background in the uh, science lab so cool even shane black paid homage to alien versus predator something that ridley scott's you know when he made his alien prequel he just wrote that off completely like nope that didn't happen so my fair part. enough again this this almost sounds like a, a case of the fans wanting a reboot out of one side of their mouths but would absolutely be outraged if all they got was a reboot out of the other side. Yes. So again, it's, they wanted Shane Black and now the social media sites for like AVP Galaxy or I, I don't even look at IMDB message board anymore. I should, but all, all those are filled with is Shane Black ruined this. Shane Black ruined that. Shane Black ruined this. Ruined my childhood. Famous words for Star Wars fans. So-and-so ruined my childhood. But it was, as far as I was concerned, it was fine. It was, it was good. But to me, all the Predator sequels are just good. The original Predator, Above and Beyond, Predator sequels, they're all just good. 
And to uh, back up what you said, uh, this is according to IMDb, but uh, the budget for the new 2017 Predator movie was $88 million estimate. Opening weekend was $24.6 million in the U.S. and grossing in the U.S. $51 million, which means that it probably made its money back if you count international by, by a fair margin. I, but I believe it's doing really good in one of our, the foreign markets. I'm not sure which one. I, I want to say China? China's a pretty good one to be good in. It could be China. So, you know, as far as was it a blockbuster? No. Was it a bomb? I don't think you probably want to say that. And as far as Metacritic reviews, (laughs) again, this is from uh, notable reviewers who contribute a 48 rating. Wow. Not uh, not loved by the uh, by the critics. The top one looks like it was eighty three, and it goes down from there significantly. So yes, talked about Ridley Scott. Talked about Shane Black. Yep. Uh, they they the fans wanted them. They both fans essentially reject what they had to offer. Now let's talk about The Hobbit and Peter Jackson. I uh, know we're moving into my territory. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy comes and it goes. A huge success. Uh, with The Hobbit yet not being adapted to live action? Uh, a huge money-making success, yes. Not the biggest critical darling, for as much as the fans loved it, and some people would would snub it. Um, it did win some awards, certainly, but uh, a lot of people thought it was niche as a fantasy epic. But yeah, for those of us who loved it, we really loved that movie. Oh, yes, yeah. A uh, series of movies. Uh, I would say that Lord of the Rings introduced me into liking fantasy movies. Before I used to uh, fantasy, keep away from me. Uh, legend? What is this legend bull crap? I'm not watching this. Weird unicorn <laughs> stuff going on in Tom Cruise. That's say They say that's Tim Curry. I don't believe it, but that's how I used to be. But then I saw Lord of the Rings, and I was just totally blown away by that. I, I would say Lord of the Rings was the Star Wars moment for me because I didn't have the Star Wars moment that people had in 1977. Uh, I think, for me, it was Lord of the Rings. That was my Star Wars moment. So, these movies are they're, they're huge success. I mean, we even had, for the first time ever, a fantasy film winning Best Picture, Best Director for Peter Jackson. Usually those awards for the Academy are reserved for the artsy films, the very dra- the dramas, the super dramas. So New Line and Peter Jackson end up cutting ties right after Return of the King comes out. It's something about profits not being shared. So New Line's like, you know, what profits? And Peter Jackson's like, you got profits, so... Peter Jackson just drops out for any negotiations that could ever happen with The Hobbit. Now, in that time, The Hobbit was tied up with legal issues to be adapted into a live-action film. Um, so th- that's also why we never got The Hobbit, like, a couple years afterwards. It was just tied up in um, legal limbo for quite a while. Anybody who's dealt with the, uh, the token estate, you better lawyer up at all times because it gets really tricky. They don't give control of that IP to just anybody. And then when you throw the ego of a movie studio in with it, it is a minefield. So a couple years go by and, and new lines had flop after flop, it, you know, issues with their uh, president at the time. Um, Robert Shea, Robert Shea was head of new line. He built new line and he essentially almost could have had it crumble, but new line was a subsidiary of Warner brothers. So Warner brothers own new line. I think like how Disney owns Lucasfilm. I think that's how that, how that was Warner brothers and new line. They, they were technically the same 
parent company. You know? I'll admit I'm not familiar with that at all. But So eventually Warner Brothers just kind of absorbs New Line. It becomes Warner Brothers and New Line. New Line, when Warner Brothers releases a movie now sometimes, like those raunchy comedies or even those horror films, it's under the New Line banner. Fair enough. So once New Line was out of the picture, the legal issues with The Hobbit begin to actually improve. It looks like they might be getting these movies made. So they begin talks with Peter Jackson. Warner Brothers wants Peter Jackson involved with this movie. Now, at this time, he wasn't attached to direct. The person that they actually hired on to direct... Guillermo de Toro. ...to write and direct the films, two films at the time. In fact, fans have mixed feelings regarding this. I mean, they like del Toro's take on fantasy and, and horror stuff. Sure. But at the same time, why isn't Peter Jackson directing this? He's producing it. Why is he not directing it? While this was going on, they were still having legal issues. They weren't able to get filming this as soon as they wanted to. Things were still being tied up. And then eventually del Toro drops out. So he can go make his other stuff. And it was a respectful dropout. With Guillermo del Toro, he is a big director for doing passion projects. He falls in love with things. And then he goes and he throws all of his effort into it. That's probably why his, his movies are very quirky and personable. But he gets so much out of his actors. Because he truly falls in love with every movie that he makes. And if that ever something happens to that, then he just drops it and moves on. Yeah, it, that, it doesn't surprise me that his name would be thrown into that and then he would back out on that. It's it's happened before. I was a little sad because then I knew that Ron Perlman would not be in this Hobbit movie. <laughs> yeah, we do love Ron Perlman, don't we? Honestly, Ron Perlman could be in any Lord of the Rings movie because he works so well under a mask and makeup. Mm-hmm. That is correct. But, continue. So, Peter Jackson is announced to be directing this film and the fans are excited. They, 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 they wanted Peter Jackson to return to middle earth and well, they got him. Then somehow two movies from a 320 page book turns into three movies, two movies to three movies from a, such a, a short book. When you compare it to the other books, you're like, really? How is that even possible? Whatever. But I think that was the sign when fans started to go, I don't think this is going to work out the way we thought it would be. Um, I think they weren't as harsh as, let's say, they are to Ridley Scott or Shane Black's direction in those movies. But at the same time, I guess Jackson also had source material he's going off of. So maybe that's how they're able to accept it at a lesser degree. But to a point, I think I can chime in here on behalf of the Lord of the Rings fans, as I am a Lord of the Rings fan. We love the movies. The first, the first three movies were fantastic. And it was a really nice envisioning of what we had always done in our imagination and later through the animated Lord of the Rings. And he did such a great job of reimagining those characters and putting forward a believable world and showing all the drama and all of the pomp and circumstance and everything you wanted to see in the Lord of the Rings movies. The problem was with the with the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that it's got an ongoing plot. It's not personal because it's a story about a group of people in a in a pseudo historical event. So things don't have the time and labor to make it so personal and lavish the detail on it that the Hobbit did. As a result, you had a constant motion that drove the plot through those three movies and kept things going at a much grander pace. With The Hobbit, it was much more of a love letter. He was allowed to dwell on every single detail. He didn't have to leave so much on the cutting room floor. 
Now, as somebody who's seen the movies in the movies, and then I've seen the expanded versions uh, when those came out on DVD and Blu-ray, um, I loved <laughs> all of the expanded stuff that was on. Uh, that's an extra three hour, two hours and 30 minutes, I believe, total of extra stuff that was put on those extendeds. And I, as a huge fan of the source material, loved it, everything. But at the same time, objectively, I can stand back and say, that stuff that they took out, did not add to the story significantly. You can tell the story without the things that they cut out, but it is nice to see the stuff put back in. It makes it more familiar, and uh, it had some nice touches to it. I thought there was more outrage, honestly, in the the Hobbit movies because they felt they had to shoehorn in characters oh, who were yeah. never in, who were never in. Legally. Yes, when you when you had to find some way because Orlando Bloom needed work apparently, and uh-huh. just happened to be in New Zealand. They won't do pirates with me anymore. I must be in this movie, right? Which is stupid. They should have done a spinoff with Orlando Bloom, honestly. But we'll, that's something else completely. <laughs> um, that to me was much more of the outrage because I wanted to spend as much time in that world as I can. And stretching out two movies to three movies did not bother me a bit. It may have bothered some fans who thought that it was there was going to be less detail. But anybody who saw the three movies, there was a lot that went into those movies. It wasn't a lot of dull spots and a lot of filler. No, he, he did, even though I have issues with the Hobbit films, as a whole picture, it, it, it expands the world. I, I like the world that's created in the in these Hobbit and Lord of the Rings movies. It's just as silly as it sounds, Hobbit 2 and Hobbit 3, I could not... The Desolation of Smog and the Battle of Five Armies. Yes, I, I, I always fall asleep during those. And that's with the uh, non-extended version. And when we were watching the extended version of... Uh, the first Hobbit film, what was that, what do they call that again? Unexpected Journey. Uh, the Unexpected Journey. By the time we get to the the, the, the troll song or whatever was going on there, yes. I'm, I was starting to doze. My wife already fell asleep, but I was I was dozed off. Our stepson, my stepson, was like gone. Like he he wanted to watch these movies, but he kept going back and forth, and he disappeared halfway through. And here we are. We're like, oh. Okay, I guess we're watching our own. I think one of the important things, too, <laughs> is that the difference of the story had a lot to do with how the imagining of the characters. With the Lord of the Rings series, everybody in the group, with the exception of the Hobbits, was a seasoned warrior. You were telling an action story, so there was lots of action. Action heroes need action to do action stuff. Aragorn had to fight things. Gimli had to fight things. Legolas had to shoot things and then knife things. There was stuff to do. There was always at least a hint of action or a threat of menace that they had to overcome. With The Hobbit, it was more of a personal story. Most of the dwarves were were portrayed as being fairly inept, honestly. Thorin, of course, well, Thorin was amazing, but... You know, you had Bofur and Poffer and, and a number of the dwarves who were just nice guys. They were nice dwarves. But you didn't get the feeling that this was a pack of killers who was ready to go and throw down for... They were greedy dwarves who were out trying to line their pockets. And they were... The whole adventure thing, they would put up with the discomfort of it to, to get rich. And then, of course, you had Bilbo, who, if you portrayed him in any kind of fighting role, he'd have been killed off in the first chapter! which you didn't want him in a fighting role. You had him use his cleverness against Gollum, and you had him accidentally get into a fight here or fight there, but only escaping from them, not conquering. And I think that was important to keep to the story and keep true to the story. If they had changed it that much to make those action movies, that really would have been rough. 
Yeah, what's kind of funny is I I have the problem. My thing with those movies was I think they went a little too long with some of the action scenes in the Hobbit film. But well, they're yes. also expanding it into three movies, and I think I think objectively he could have pulled off two movies, made his expanded versions, and still be able to tell the same story. Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he could have told the same story. But the thing was, Warner if I remember right, he that. kind of. <laughs> He put his foot down. He didn't want to have as much left on the editing floor with this one. And I think I wasn't there, obviously. We're not privy to those conversations. But I think he was promised three movies. And I think that is where he probably drew his line in the sand. He wouldn't do it unless he could do the level of detail he really wanted. Some directors are brutal chop artists who will heartlessly, you know, hack their, their creation down without remorse. Some of the movies that come as a result of that are better for the omissions. Jackson seems to have a hard time doing that. Yes, uh, you might be correct. Uh, you mentioned you, you mentioned the the chopping of like let's say Alien when they did their rough cut, yep. two and a half hours, and now it's an hour and fifty eight minutes, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. That's quite a chunk to cut out. Also, the critics didn't really understand the difference between the movies. The uh, the first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship, was a 92 Metacritic, and The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, only a 58. I think it was prequelitis that had something to do with The Hobbit. That probably didn't help. Um, but again, my, my issues were in the content that he felt had to be added to make it his movie. A lot of other people, like you, had problems with the pacing and things, and... Uh, Again, it I comes down to fandom a lot, too. I still like the world that, that was projected in the Hobbit films. I, just, I want to live in that world. I just, I, it just the, you're right, the pacing. And mentioning Peter Jackson's just inability to cut things, King Kong film that he yep. made is a prime oh. example of that. Uh, and, and somehow he made an extended version for that, too. But, you know, that that's a prime example of Peter Jackson not being able to cut, trim things down. But like I mentioned, the, the fan... It sounds like we were a little more passionate about this because we both are familiar with these movies in this world. Um, you more so because of your experience with the books. Um, Correct. The, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings books were some of the first books that I'd ever had read to me. Three, my mother was reading these books to me. So, yes, they were a big part of my life. Right. And Peter Jackson, the, the, the fan base, and this might just also just be movie-going fan base, too, because uh, I think... Like you mentioned, someone like you who's familiar with the books appreciates the, the the world that was projected on screen. But you're telling you're telling a, a long story like that over the course of three years. Mm-hmm. Um, you are going to you know end up with a certain kind of movie. But yeah, as far as as far as I'm concerned, it was a difference in. And this is the thing too. Even though there was a, a fairly large gap of time, Peter Jackson hadn't significantly changed personality wise. This was not the Ridley Scott seventy nine to two thousand you know twelve. This was ten years, nine years even. And realistically, be- between when they started shooting and be- stopped shooting on the Return of the King, started shooting with the Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, nine years. Safe to say. Yeah, nine years. Yeah. It was 2003 when Return of the King came out, and then two, two, 2012 when The Hobbit came out. But they were obviously shooting before yeah. then. So. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, I think they were, they were shooting the Lord of the Rings trilogy all the way back in 1999. Yeah. So, so the same. Um, you know, you have that... Uh, 
you don't have a huge gap of time. He's still the same person telling stuff in the same world and just with a different angle that the fans didn't didn't appreciate as much. Some fans didn't. I I did enjoy the movies. Um, I do prefer the first trilogy, uh, but I do respect what he did with the with the second trilogy. I thought it was a good story and a good imagining. And I really would have liked to have seen him make God help me six movies out of the first trilogy. I could have done that. Not many people could have, perhaps. Someday. I could I could I could put myself in a glass box and spend eighteen hours in Middle Earth reliving those stories, I would be a happy guy. But And again, this is to my point. This is why for these three things mm-hmm. I put Peter Jackson and the Hobbit towards the bottom. Yep. Because the the fan Yes, you, you know, it's kind of a mild case that they don't know what they want, but, but they, 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 they accepted what happened. Yeah. But the world didn't end, unlike the other two, Alien and Predator, just because it was different approaches. I also like to thank, uh, the fans for, uh, the Lord of the Rings series. A little bit more forgiving, not quite as rabid. Is it, I no. like to think that maybe we're a little bit more mature crowd. Because so many of us have our roots grounded in earlier works. Whereas that might be, and that might be exactly why our next one that we're going to talk about might be a oh little dear. more. Buckle your seats, folks. This is about to get to interesting. All right. Until next time, this has been Back to the Podcast with Dave and Rob. Thanks for listening, and make sure that you subscribe. And uh, when we come out with new things, you'll be the first to know. Thank you, and farewell.